happy Monday and welcome to another episode of the Religious Studies Project. I'm Bree Fallon and with me is Dave McConaughey. Today we've got a great episode. We're really excited because one of the things that the Religious Studies Project really specializes in is contemporary studies. We have so many great episodes about what's going on right now, including the discourse series of current events that will be coming up next week. But in this episode today, we really take the clock and turn it all the way back to the origins of Christianity. The episode that we're featuring today deals with major issues of comparison religious studies, drawing on seminal figures like Bruce Lincoln and Jay-Z Smith, and it features a number of major, really important texts for early Christianity, such as uh, the Gospel of Thomas and the idea of Q. If you're into early Christian origins and you work with uh, ancient Christianity, this is going to be a really unique opportunity for you uh, here at the Religious Studies Project, and one of the first times that we've really had a chance to look at um, the historical Jesus on it. So our episode today featuring William Arnold interviewed by Sidney Castillo on Ancient Christian Origins, a Heterogeneous History. Take it away. And now we are back again into the Relief Studies Project podcast. And this time I have the pleasure to have with me Professor William Orno from University of Regina in Canada. Uh, I will introduce you very briefly. William Orno is professor at the Department of Religious Studies of the University of Regina, Canada, he obtained his PhD at the University of Toronto with a dissertation on a thorough examination of the sociological conditions of the Q source. His research is focused on ancient Christianity, New Testament scholarship, and the politics of religious studies. He has dealt extensively on ancient Christian sources as Q, the Gospel of Thomas, the Pauline Letters, among others. Welcome, Professor Arnold, to the Religious Studies Project. Thanks for having me. It's great. Now, we don't get the chance to have discussions about Christian, ancient Christian origins. And uh, it's actually the first podcast we have on the subject in all of the previous ones that we have had so far. So we aim to explore a little bit more of this area of scholarship with you. Excellent. Great. So I'll just dive right into the questions. And firstly, to try to situate our listeners and also the interview here, for, for the coming questions, I would like to ask, how can we approach the study of ancient Christian origins from within religious studies? It's an excellent question and a, and a fairly complex one, I, I think. Um, I, the first thing I'd stress about this is, is that there are, that the New Testament, uh, early Christianity, the documents that comprise the New Testament are human cultural artifacts that can be approached in a wide variety of different ways. And there's no one of them that's the right way. Uh, traditionally, though, the documents have been studied because they're part of the Christian canon. And so the study of these documents has been basically a kind of religious practice. That is to say, Christians study the New Testament because, according to Christian doctrine, the documents of the New Testament are authoritative uh, for doctrine and morals. They may view them as divinely inspired. They may view them as literally dictated by the Holy Spirit word for word. Um, but right across the range of, of um, uh, Christianity, they're regarded as important documents for theological reasons. 
This means that the study of um, the New Testament has traditionally for the last 2,000 years, basically, uh, been a religious practice. It also means that there's no, re- there's no need for people who approach the New Testament this way to justify what they're doing. They already have a reason for doing it. These are important, Mm. God-given documents that um, uh, human beings ought to uh, attend to very carefully. If you don't approach the text from that perspective, which is a perfectly legitimate perspective, it's even, in fact, I would say, uh, an academically respectable uh, uh, practice. And I know a lot of people say, you know, theological approaches aren't uh, academic. I think in the strictest sense of academic, that is in the sense of learned study, uh, theological approaches are very often extraordinarily academic, extraordinarily intellectually sophisticated. So there's nothing particularly wrong with this. But if you're approaching the documents without the assumption uh, of Christian theology, with a, from without um, a religious commitment to Christianity, then the first thing I think you have to do is ask yourself, why am I studying these documents? What are they important for? In other words, if you take a religious studies approach, that is an approach that is looking at these documents without the theological suppositions of Christianity, that's Mm -hmm. looking at them from without, you need to make them data for some larger question. Does that make sense? Yes, very, very much. And it's like a grounded entry to what uh, we want to address here. Because yeah. usually there is this overlapping, of course, as you mentioned, of theology and religious studies or within any other kind of discipline that does religious studies or study religion for that matter. And it's usually a difficult thing to try to differentiate which are the assumptions or which are like the default concepts that we are going in for addressing a very specific phenomenon. And I think Specifically for Bible studies or like New Testament sources, that's this is a very very legitimate issue to yeah to rise and the, and the fact that these documents have been um, a, a center of academic personal religious all, all kinds of interests for so long gives you the impression that there is something intrinsically important about them. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it's incumbent on somebody who's approaching this from a religious studies perspective to say, why are they important? What are they important for? What patterns of human behavior do these documents illustrate? What human questions do these documents allow us to answer? And I think that what's different, what distinguishes a religious studies approach, and here I I suspect I am very much at odds with many of my colleagues in the field, Um, but what I think distinguishes uh, a religious studies approach to these documents from, say, uh, from other non-theological approaches, such as a Mm -hmm. historical approach, a literary approach, an anthropological approach, is that religious studies is implicitly, at least, comparative. Mm. It seems to me that, and I'm I'm a a devotee of Jonathan Z. Smith on this point, I think that what religious studies does best and distinctively is comparison. And so I think there should be much greater emphasis on comparison or at least comparability in a religious Mm. studies approach than in other approaches to this material. I actually have a 
uh, a story um, that that uh, uh, kind of illustrates this. I was uh, I had helped organize a conference once many years ago. I won't tell you where or when because I don't want to. Um, uh, uh, people to recognize themselves in the story. <laughs> uh, but but uh, I, I organized a conference many years ago, and it was on early Christianity, and we uh, had a lot of really quite brilliant speakers. Uh, and at the end of the conference, I was giving a sort of response uh, to, to um, what had you know, sort of been thrown up in the air at that conference and what the papers have been about and so on. And I said, uh, by way of criticism, that I thought that um, uh, the papers were, in general, arguing for positions about early Christianity that Mm. the authors would never dream of arguing for, say, (laughs) the ISIS cult. Right. Oh, wow. or, or some any other ancient form of religion. Uh, and and uh, the, the presenters got quite angry at me about this. And they said, well, we, when you organized the conference, you never said uh, that we needed to compare stuff. And and my my response was, um, I, I I not criticizing you for, say, failing to compare Jesus uh, or Christianity to the ISIS cult. My my problem, what you've argued, is that there is no possible comparison between what you've said about early Christianity and the ISIS cult. And if you're saying things about early Christianity that you would be unable to say, that you would regard as ridiculous, if you were to right. say something about the ISIS cult, then you're that's a kind of intellectual malpractice, right? So. Right. Even even beyond actually engaging in comparison, I think it's really important for scholars of early Christianity who imagine themselves as studying religion to be careful not to say things about the early Christians that mm. they could not comfortably say about other religious traditions, past, present, culturally similar, culturally dissimilar, whatever. Exactly. I think that's um, a very, very good insight. Yeah. I, I also think, though, that comparison can be can be misused. And I, I mentioned Jonathan Z. Smith uh, um, a few minutes ago. Uh, one of one of Jonathan's great contributions to the field was the book Drudgery Divine, in mm-hmm. which he showed that uh, comparison has been undertaken historically in the study of early Christianity in uh, in a deeply dishonest and duplicitous way. So it's not like comparison is a magic bullet. Comparison can be used for fundamentally dishonest intellectual aims, right? Showing the superiority of Christianity, showing how Christianity is incomparable to anything else. Exactly. But I think the principle of comparability, at least, is a central piece of approaching these documents in a in a um, a non-theological way and particularly in a religious studies way. Exactly, yes. So indeed, there is no sui generis aspect of Christianity within Christianity that is like allows it to put forward differently from other traditions of the time as well. So it needs to be in dialogue or contrasted with the context and also with other kind of religions from the time in like an analytical exercise at least. Yes, absolutely. Although I'd, I'd push that even a little bit further. I think, uh, and and I actually, this, this pertains to another question that I think you're going to ask me, but, but um, I think that, um, sorry, I lost my train of thought there. 
this okay? What was what was uh, what did? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. I've, okay, I've got it again. I've got it again. Yeah. It's okay. I can edit that in one, two, three. You can go. Um, I think that uh, your your last remark uh, focuses a great deal on comparability in context. That is mm. to say, comparing Christianity to cultural forms that um, uh, were present in the actual social and historical environment in which Christianity arose. And that is, you, you are absolutely right, 100% central. But I also think that we need to ensure, again, I think for the sake of intellectual honesty, that the kinds of explanations we apply to early Christianity are generalizable in the, in the strongest sense. That is to say, it, 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 we've got different historical circumstances, say, between um, uh, UFO abduction stories and early Christianity, right? These are completely different things, completely different cultures, separated by millennia, separated by oceans. Um, it, there is no way that, that uh, UFO abduction stories had any influence on early Christianity. But I think that, that one is guilty of a kind of intellectual malpractice if you attempt to explain early Christian material in ways that are fundamentally different from the way that you would attempt to explain UFO abduction stories. Oh, I see. Right? I see. They, they're, they're, uh, the ways that we approach human doings ought to be consistent. Exactly. That, I think, is my point. With no exceptions. Yeah, I think so. Right? Well, exactly. you know, exceptions for one's children and one's loved ones, right? I'm going <laughs> to explain my kids very differently than I explain the rest of the world. But aside from, you know, special exemptions like that, yeah, I think, I think if, if I view contemporary politics a certain way, if I assess my neighbor's actions in a certain way, if I assess my colleague's actions in a certain way, then those mm. kinds of ways of reading the human world ought to also be the ways that I read the human world of early Christianity. This is a very good remark, and I think it sets very broadly how we're going to delve more into what you have researched on. And for this, I would like to move to the next question. You bet. And specifically to ask you, in your book with Russell McCutcheon, The Circuit is Profane, you have a chapter titled The Origins of Christianity Within and Without Religion, a case study, where you discuss on the necessary demystification of religious phenomena as a condition for a more comprehensive assessment and comparison of New Testament canon sources and the Christian tradition as a whole. Could you elaborate on this regard, which you have done a little bit, but try to get gear towards that chapter specifically, which I had the pleasure to read, by the way. Thank you. Um, yeah, it seems to me that the, I, I'm, I'm kind of, when I talk about mystification, I'm, I'm borrowing a lot here from Bruce Lincoln uh, and actually going even further back, a little bit from Feuerbach, uh, who's kind of a, a patron saint of mine. Um, but the idea of mystification is pretty simple. The, the, the kinds of things that we tend to call religion uh, routinely invoke entities who don't obey the ordinary laws of nature, gods, devils, spirits, angels, what have you. Since religious 
behavior and thought concerns itself with these kinds of beings, it's it very often, and I won't say that this is you know universally the case. Uh, I won't say all religion does this, but it seems to me that it is very typical of the stuff that we call religion, that it appeals to this kind of supernatural activity as its basis, and so it situates its authority mm. outside of this world. It situates its authority outside of the normal chains of cause and effect that we use normally to, to assess non-religious things. In a way, this links to what I was just saying, right? The ways that I assess my neighbor's activity or, you know, contemporary politics uh, I typically are naturalistic. They don't invoke explanations from beyond this world or any such mm-hmm. thing. And uh, often religious uh, uh, behavior and religious artifacts, documents, and so on, do invoke some authority that's grounded in chains of cause and effect outside of nature. If we're approaching this material from a religious studies perspective, then we're looking at religious artifacts as human artifacts. Mm. And as a result, we have to put aside Uh, any kind of explanations that rely on extra-human agents or non-natural chains of cause and effect. This sounds really easy, right? Take the story (laughs) of Jesus walking on the water, right? Jesus walks on the Sea of Galilee out to a boat to his disciples, all right? If I try to explain that story um, as follows, Jesus uh, was the son of God and he walked on the water because he was capable as the son of God of suspending the ordinary laws of nature. And the Gospels record this uh, episode because it actually happened that way. Then obviously I am not demystifying things. But mystification, the mystification internal to the Christian tradition is so deep and pervasive Mm. that it finds other ways of working itself out that aren't quite as blatant, but are just as mystifying. There are scattered throughout ostensibly historical works on the origins of Christianity. There are appeals to charisma, appeals to conversion, right? And the enthusiasm of conversion, appeals to belief, and so on. And all of these are actually part of the rationalizing structure internal to early Christian discourse that have been sort of shorn of blatantly supernatural elements, but still absorbed sort of structurally. I I don't think I'm being very clear here. Let me give you an example. I think that um, one of the most uh, uh, sort of appalling tendencies, that's overstated, one one of the most problematic um, tendencies in the field of Christian origins is is the tendency uh, of so many scholars to get really hung up and write thousands and thousands and thousands of pages on the so-called historical Jesus. Right. And the the enterprise of the historical Jesus, for those of, uh, of the audience who, who aren't uh, aware of this, is basically the recognition that the Gospels are filled with all kinds of supernatural details and that as historians, we can't take these details, you know, as, well, gospel truth. Uh, and so it's really an exercise in, in sort of paring away from the gospel stories, the, the implausible features of the stories. 
and seeing what's left and trying to make a coherent picture of Jesus, the human being, as he really was 2,000 years ago before Christians overlaid all these theological elements on top. This exercise originated as, as um, part of an effort to critique dogma. So its, its origins are very critical. But really, since the 19th century, the his, historical Jesus scholarship has really been, um, in my view, a theological enterprise. And what I think is the mystification central to it is the idea that uh, what happened, what actually happened in the life of the human person, Jesus, is incredibly, intrinsically important. But it's only important if Jesus is the Son of God, right? And, exactly. <laughs> and in terms, and in terms, so so the mystification slides in even in the action of paring away all these supernatural details. In fact, it seems to me that the reason that so many scholars have written so many pages, I mean, we've got multi-volume, you know, seven-volume works on the historical Jesus, each a thousand pages, right, pinning down exactly what Jesus said and did. There is behind this the assumption that Jesus is the cause of Christianity. But Uh that's a terrible historical assumption. You can't assume that at all. Uh, the cause of Christianity is the appropriation of the figure of Jesus subsequent to Jesus' death. So uh-huh. what's, ha- what's happening here is, is that you've got people incorporating a fundamental, theological, mystified assumption that Jesus is the source of Christianity. Well, that's a doctrinal claim. It's a theological claim. But it's incorporated in this ostensibly historical work. So I think that it's it's actually a, a, a serious sort of struggle to try to pare these things out, to try to guard against incorporating feel, uh, Christian theological suppositions in one's historical work. Does that make yeah. sense? It makes absolute perfect sense. And it's very, very interesting to see how like it's not ex- itself the fact that Jesus exists or not that could be even irrelevant to the question, but the fact of the matter of how people created a discourse around the figure of Jesus, and it was not only a very specific set of people, but they were tri- distributed throughout a, a region in the Levant, for that matter, in a specific context in history, and I think that's what you address in your research when you write about how there was these Jesus people no, at first yeah, yeah, before yeah. Christianity, yes. Absolutely, absolutely, and in a sense, Jesus is is um, Jesus himself is kind of irrelevant. Um, hmm. I I, uh, I I believe that there was a historical person, Jesus, on which the gospel stories uh, are based, but my uh, partner uh, does not, um, and she's a scholar of religion as well, but she's she's not a scholar of early Christianity, and we go around and around on this question, and and but what I think is interesting about it is that the answer to that question makes almost no difference for how either of us understands the origins of Christianity. She could be, I I, I think she's wrong, but she could be 100% right, and it wouldn't change much of anything about what I say about the subsequent development of Christianity. 
Right? That, I think, indicates uh, how little Jesus himself, as, as someone other than a literary character, is, is how, how, uh, how central he isn't to the unfolding of Christianity. Exactly, exactly. And this is the... Uh, yes, you can go on. Yeah, I, I and I, again, something. I think what we've got here is is I think this relates to what I was uh, saying earlier. What I think is crucial mm -hmm. here is that whatever approach we take to making sense of the developments within early Christianity, they have to be approaches that we would feel comfortable applying to human behavior writ large. And again, I see this as a kind of ethical principle in scholarship. This is a, a categorical imperative uh, of historical or anthropological work that I, I think mm. that the principles you use to make sense of this material have to be the same general principles that you use to make sense of other human behavior. Exactly. I think that's a very, very positive claim. And uh, in order to go further into where you have done research, now speaking of Jesus and the Gospels, I would like to ask the following question. In relation to the previous things we have been addressing and for, to, for introducing us more to your work, could you share your findings on the non-canonical Gospels in the form of the Gospel of Thomas and Q? I know it's a big thing to unpack there. In, uh, yeah. not going, we will need like at least an hour to address each source specifically, but for the listeners to have like a kind of takeaway idea How, what this, first of all, what this is, and second, how you, you have been working with it. Okay, yeah. Um, uh, and you're right, I, I could talk for hours about this stuff. I really enjoy it. <laughs> uh, it Q is a reconstructed source. So we, so we don't actually have any ancient manuscripts of Q. But, it's, but the idea of Q is drawn from the fact that the first three Gospels in the New Testament, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, show a literary relationship to one another. That is, they weren't written by eyewitnesses. They, they were not written independently of one another. What happened instead is that the Gospel of Mark was written first, and then Matthew and Luke both revised Mark. And uh, we can tell from the way that they changed Mark that they revised Mark independently of each other. That is, Matthew didn't have Matthew had Mark in front of him, but he didn't have Luke. Luke had Mark in front of him, but he didn't right. he didn't have Matthew. And um, it, it so happens that in addition to all the material that Matthew and Luke share uh, from that they both got independently from Mark, there's about 200, 230 verses that they share with each other that aren't in Mark. And mm. since they worked independently, Matthew couldn't have gotten those uh, verses from Luke. Luke couldn't have got them from Matthew. And they all seem to, these verses, they have common themes, they have a common style. So since the middle of the 19th century, scholars of this material have um, argued, uh, convincingly in my view, that Matthew and Luke made use of a second source in addition to Mark, a second written source, that was a collection of Jesus' sayings. And uh, since it was German scholars who originally uh, made this inference, uh, the, the document in question is called Q, which is an abbreviation for Quella, source. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's where Q comes from. What is Q? It's basically a list of sayings of Jesus. And um, there, there is a, a strong presentation here of... Um, 
Jesus as a teacher of wisdom, a teacher of morals, a proclaimer of the kingdom when people will be nice to each other for a change, uh, and um, also uh, a bunch of apocalyptic threats uh, for people who aren't nice to each other for a change. Uh, and there are remarkable absences uh, in Q as well. Um, we, we can reconstruct Q pretty well from, from by comparing Matthew and Luke. And the material that they share shows um, very little interest in the death of Jesus, certainly uh, very little interest in the crucifixion, uh, very little explicit discussion of Jesus' resurrection, mm-hmm. uh, a, a very little, in fact, no references, uh, no secure references to Jesus as the Christ. That's a title that's not used in Q. Uh, so this is a quite interesting, probably quite early document that presents Jesus in a way that's rather different from what we get in Paul and the canonical Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Right? Uh, the Gospel of Thomas is uh, in some ways quite similar to Q, except we do have an ancient copy of it. Uh, the Gospel mm. of Thomas uh, is is a um, collection of sayings of Jesus. There, there's a conventional numbering of the sayings that splits them into 114 sayings. Every saying is, there's no real narrative uh, flow in the Gospel of Thomas. Each uh, saying is just introduced with, Jesus said, and then there's a saying. He said, and then there's a saying. His disciples said, and Jesus replied, and then there's a saying. Uh, and it just goes on like that for 114 sayings. The Gospel of Thomas, oh. um, for for those uh, uh, listeners who, who um, are scratching their heads and going, why have I never heard of the Gospel of Thomas, uh, is not in the canon of the New Testament. Uh, it was not deemed as authoritative uh, as early Christians were sorting out which documents made it into the New Testament. Uh, and it was lost to us uh, until... Um, well, really until the 20th century. Uh, and uh, tiny fragments of, of uh, what we were later identified as the Gospel of Thomas were dug up in uh, an Egyptian, an ancient Egyptian garbage dump in um, ancient Oxyrhynchus, uh, dating from about 200 and a little later. Um, but we didn't quite know what they were. They were just these little papyrus fragments that had, you know, little snippets of Jesus eggs on them. Uh, but when in 1945, um, a cache of... Um, um, uh, what are usually described as Gnostic documents were discovered uh, at Nag Hammadi in Egypt. Um, mm. I, I, among those documents was a Coptic translation of the Gospel of Thomas. And uh, what makes Thomas so exciting is, you know, we've got the Q, right, which is this hypothetical source. We we think it exists. We can reconstruct it pretty securely. But some people cast doubt on it, and it sure would be nice to have a copy in our hands. And yeah. Q appears rather unique in early Christianity in that it has this uh, view of Jesus as a teacher uh, not the Christ, uh, not a focus on crucifixion, not a focus on resurrection. And then suddenly we find the Gospel of Thomas, and bang, here's an actual ancient document that presents Jesus as a teacher, that doesn't uh, focus on the narrative of Jesus' life, but rather on what he has to say, that doesn't present Jesus as the Christ, that um, uh, um, doesn't focus on the crucifixion and the resurrection, and so on. 
So it's this document that is very, in many respects, it's not identical to Q by any stretch of the imagination, but in many respects is similar to Q. Um, and this is very exciting. So that's my sort of sketch of those two documents. Um, now, what, what I've argued about them in the case of Q uh, is picking up, uh, and this was my dissertation way, way back in the 1990s, um, mm-hmm. but picking up from a suggestion made by uh, John Kloppenberg, who has got to be the world's foremost Q scholar, um, I, I pursued the idea that uh, Q was written by Galilean village scribes. And basically what I tried to do in my analysis of Q was track the social and economic circumstances that would have made the production of it, that would have inspired the production of a um, document of this sort. And what I argued is that basically... What we have here are a bunch of village scribes. I guess I should explain what a village scribe is. We have evidence in antiquity of sort of low-level bureaucrats, uh, first mm-hmm. in the uh, Ptolemaic Empire uh, that, that um, controls Egypt prior to the Romans taking over, and then in the Roman Empire as well. Um, these low-level village clerks who are basically bureaucrats who execute land titles and marriage contracts and this sort of thing. And um, the, I, I argued uh, in my dissertation, which eventually became uh, the book Jesus and the Village Scribes, that these, these scribes were um, in a transitional situation, in a, situ- in, a, in a situation of flux that was making them uncomfortable. And that the reason for this had mainly to do with the um, building of two large administrative centers in the Galilee, uh, Sepphoris and Tiberias, uh, that were um, um, built basically to... Um, facilitate the extraction of economic surplus from the hinterland. Um, That is, they were built as basically consumer cities to draw wealth out of the countryside. And one of the effects of this, and, and, and I did not argue that this suddenly made the peasants destitute and they all got together and had a, a you know, socialist revolution or anything like that. Um, I argued mm. that the direct effect on the peasantry was, was incremental and minimal. Um, but the, the, the people who were most disturbed by this in a Galilean village setting were village scribes who had o- operated even as low-level bureaucrats, with a degree of autonomy. And that the building of these cities put them into an administrative hierarchy in which uh, they were quite subordinate. Uh And so um, in response to this, these scribes came up with a sort of ideological program uh, that promoted immediate, that is, and I mean this immediate in the literal sense, unmediated village reciprocity, right? People should not engage with these extended administrative structures. They should just be nice to each other, nice to their neighbors, give without seeking return and so on. And Mm -hmm. that this social program was grounded in a particular vision of God as local. So the religious wow. ideology here is basically the, the claim that God lives right here in your village. Act accordingly. Right. 
and and that ultimately this ideological vision can be uh, understood in terms of of these scribes being uh, this is a, a you know a fifty cent word that I used in my dissertation deracinated uprooted from their previous uh, uh, administrative autonomy right, that they had before the building of these cities. I actually think there's a neat parallel here. I think you can watch um, across the ancient Near East over a very long period of time, evolution in notions of God as the evolution, uh, as um, uh, in parallel with the evolution of the state. So gods are initially local, as large national states build up, the gods move to the capital city, right? Yahweh lives in Jerusalem, Marduk lives in Babylon, and so forth. Mm-hmm. And eventually, in the, in the era of large multi-ethnic empires, and I'm thinking from the Persian period onward, there is an increasing tendency to make the gods celestial, to remove them and make them more distant and more... Um, uh, subject to mediation, right? I can't talk to God face to face. I can't even go to the capital city and talk to him in the temple. I have to talk to him through a series of intermediaries. Just like right. if I, you know, I, uh, my village is ruled ultimately by, through a whole chain of intermediates going back to the emperor who lives in Antioch or Rome or wherever, uh, that particular empire is quartered. What I see in the in the case of Q is is that basically they're trying to reel God back down to earth. Mm-hmm. And they're doing so precisely as a kind of imaginative repudiation of the social structures that led to God being cast up into the heavens in the first place. That is the social structures oh. of locating the village within a network uh, controlled by empire. So it's a reflection, sense. the ideology that emerges from that is a reflection of the social conditions that they were facing at that time. Actually, that's, I, I'm really glad you said that because I don't, I, I, I'm actually not, I, yes, you're right. That is, this ideology is very much a response to those conditions. But I don't want to say it's a simple reflection of those conditions, because the actual conditions that these people are operating on is, are, are conditions of empire. They want something different, right? They don't want to be in these, in these chains of hierarchy, and they don't want to occupy the lower levels of these chains of hierarchy. And so, in fact, they're creating an ideology that doesn't mirror the social circumstances they live in, but that opposes it, that is in friction with it, right? So, yes, it's a product of those social circumstances, but it isn't a simple reflection. Exactly. It's a position in in any case. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, Now, as... As for the Gospel of Thomas, and here I want to um, uh, throw out a reference to uh, a colleague of mine, Dr. Ian Brown, uh, a recent graduate of the University of Toronto PhD program, mm-hmm. uh, and and Ian's work on Thomas is is um, uh, runs very parallel. Uh, to the kind of stuff that I've been doing on it as well. Uh, but he's done so in, I think, more depth than I have. Um, but basically, my my uh, reading of Thomas 
is that Thomas is the product of um, the extension of low-level literacy in uh, the Roman Empire, especially among uh, urbanites. So the Roman Empire, and and this is reflected uh, in what I was just saying about Q, the Roman Empire is a bureaucratic empire. It makes uh, use of writing as an administrative technique. And as a result, uh, at least some facility in reading and writing filters down um, to sub-elite levels. So there was once upon a time when writing was largely the preserve of uh, an elite, a uh, social elite, um, but it becomes somewhat more diffused in the Roman Empire. Not, nothing like the literacy levels we have today, not even close. Um, but still, in urban contexts, there's this increasing facility uh, with the written word. And um, it, it's a facility among people who who lack the social prestige, the elite status uh, that is associated with writing. Now, writing, because of its elite um, uh, uh, focus, uh, mm-hmm. has um, um, prestige associated with it. And so what I argue with the Gospel of Thomas is that we've got low-level people who want to, who have developed uh, low levels of literacy, right? They don't have a particularly high status, um, but they want to tap into the prestige associated with literacy, and they want to imitate the practices of cultural elites who, during this period, many of whom are engaged in the um, um, learned interpretation of obscure documents. So there's all kinds of parallels to this in in this particular culture. We have stories uh, in Plutarch, um, who is a uh, second century writer who um, uh, describes uh, these symposia in which uh, learned elites sit around eating dinner and interpreting obscure sayings of Pythagoras. Uh, so Pythagoras said all these weird things like, don't eat beans. And uh, so, so these elites sit around the dinner table and say, well, what could Pythagoras have possibly meant by uh, <laughs> don't eat beans? So they come up with these interesting interpretations of what this means. So what I argue is that the Gospel of Thomas is the product of people who want to engage in this kind of behavior, um, but they don't have ownership and read ownership in scare quotes here, um, but they don't have ownership of uh, any um, obscure ancient documents that they can do this with. So what do they do? They invent one. And so <laughs> for for whatever reason, they, they um, pick up on the figure of Jesus as this teacher of esoteric oriental wisdom, and uh, they impute a series of obscure sayings uh, to him. And seriously, some of the sayings in the Gospel of Thomas are really quite obscure. Uh, I'm I'm actually sitting at my desk. Let me just pull one out here. Um, (laughs) Let's see. The kingdom of the Father. Jesus said, this is the Gospel of Thomas, uh, number 97. Jesus said, the kingdom of the Father is like a woman who is carrying a jar full of meal. When she was walking on a distant road, the handle of the jar broke and the meal spilled behind her on the road. She did not know it. She had a problem. She had not noticed a problem. When she reached her house, she put the jar down and discovered that it was empty. And that's the end of the saying. <laughs> I was like, uh, what? <laughs> Almost like parabola. 
Yes, very, yes very it's exactly, it's exactly what it is. Um, but the thing yeah. is, in the canonical gospels, the, par- the parables are generally explained or include details that make their explanation obvious. So, for example, More in the Gospel of Mark, we, yeah. So, so in the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter four, we have we have uh, the parable of the sower, and uh, Jesus tells this parable. It's supposed to be really mysterious, and the disciples are all scratching their heads. And then the text goes on. Jesus says, "Well, you idiots, I'll tell you what this is about," and he explains it. Those explanations are absent in the Gospel of Thomas. So what I think we've got here is basically uh, a document that was created for the purpose of imitating highbrow literary practices of interpretation of obscure documents. In in both approaches, these are in some ways quite different takes on the two documents. They are different documents. But both of these approaches take seriously the fact that Q and Thomas are documents. That is, they are literary productions. So the purveyors of both of these documents are people who are literate in a more or less basic way, and their literacy is fundamental to understanding their actions in producing these documents. Exactly. I think it is a very, very well-rounded discussion of how to situate this, both of these sources so, so we can understand them. And I think now we are running short amount of time, but <laughs> we have one last question, uh, which will address this fact of invention of tradition that you spoke of. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then we can move to the concluding remarks. This last question is, in your journal article, The Collection and Synthesis of Tradition and the Second Century Invention of Christianity, you discuss about the second century invention of Christianity, of course, that would pave the way for posterior institutional claims of orthodoxy. What is important to understand on this, of the sociological context from where these sources emerge, as well as the yeah. diversity and conflict interests for which they were written? Yeah, I would say the, the, um, that the point of that article was, was intended to be more negative than positive. <laughs> um, It seems to me that the single most important sociological fact to understand for the origins of Christianity is that there was no such thing as Christianity in the first century. Uh, And when I say that, I don't mean that Paul or Jesus didn't exist, and I don't mean that the documents of the New Testament weren't composed in, in the first century. Some of them certainly were. What I mean is that there was no single institutional or even conceptual entity as Christianity, that accounts in a unified way for those people and those documents, right? I think there was a Paul, there was a Jesus, they lived in the first century. Documents like the Gospel of Mark and 1 Corinthians were written in the first century. But we cannot speak coherently of these documents as Christian. And this is not just a terminological quibble, right? All of our evidence, uh, in in my view, and this there are some technical issues here, but all of our evidence, in my view, uh, for the term Christianos, Christian, or even more so, Christianismos, Christianity, all of the evidence dates, the earliest of it dates from the early second century. There is no first century use of that terminology. But that doesn't mean we can just take another word, say, call it Jesusism or something like that, and apply it to the first century. (laughs) The problem isn't just a terminological one. It's a conceptual one. There is no single institution or idea of a unified Christianity in the first century. What this means is 
that there is no necessary unity among the New Testament artifacts, right? The first century New, New Testament artifacts. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, for example, which I think was written mm-hmm. in the first century, and the Gospel of Mark, which I think was written in the first century, are separate and distinct things that need to be explained in separate and distinct ways. And that, in turn, means that there is no single one sociological factor that explains everything. Mm -hmm. If we want help with 1 Corinthians, then one particular element of the social context might help. So in the case of 1 Corinthians, I think you've got uh, the sociological factor that matters is the existence of urban centers that are populated by uprooted people of mixed ethnicities from throughout the empire. That, I think, is the sociological key to understanding 1 Corinthians. In the case of the Gospel of Thomas, I think, which may or may not be first century, but in the case of the Gospel of Thomas, I think we're dealing with a different sociological factor that's important. That's the expansion of literacy. In the case of the Gospel of Mark, yet another different sociological factor, the catastrophic effects of of a brutal war, the Jewish War of 66 to 70, I think is the primary driver or context for the Gospel of Mark. So the point is, there's no single explanation for first century Christianity, because there was no first century Christianity. Mm. And what we have instead is, in the second century, people who are groping in the direction of a Christian identity. Right. And and uh, I don't want to be understood as saying that suddenly, magically, in the year 100, Christianity appeared. But what I think we start to get, start to get in a process that it isn't complete for a very long time and maybe is never complete. But what we start to get in the second in the second century is um, an interest in or an active effort to create an idea of this unified thing that that draws together separate literary expressions, separate social contexts, uh, separate sets of ideas into one overarching big tent that can be thought of as a single thing. I'm not entirely sure why that happens, um, but that's when we start to see it happen. And part of that process involves then um, what, and I'm borrowing language here from Willie Brown, who I think uh, has borrowed it from someone else, um, but um, uh, what I think we see here is um, what Willie refers to as the retroactive confiscation of other cultural products. Mm-hmm. That is... People in the second century who are starting to think of themselves as this thing, Christian, look back, they see these existing artifacts, say, one of Paul's letters, and they say, this is about me. This is Christian. And so they take those things and they, they make them bear on their own identity and collect them together and say, these are all about this one thing. They should be read together and they should be read with reference to us, us being the second century intellectuals who are engaged in this process. Right. Oh, but, I see. but this is retroactive, right? So it's, it's very important that these people did this. It's, I think, accounts for the survival of um, the New Testament documents um, into the present day. So it's it's crucially important historically. But if we want to understand, say, 1 Corinthians on its own terms, we have to disentangle it from that second century appropriation. Exactly. 
So this is like an outcome of identity process formation, like institutionalization, probably much Absolutely. later than when the facts already happened. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. I see. Well, I think we are running out. We are running out of time already. But if you have any concluding remarks in the form of a sentence, like or an adage, like <laughs> you read us in the in the Gospel of Thomas, I think will be the right time now. Um. Yeah, I I don't know actually if I have any way of wrapping this up. Um, <laughs> I've I really enjoyed talking about it, uh, and you know I'm always uh, happy to talk about uh, early Christian writings. They they I continue to find them fascinating. Um, I I suppose you know one of the um, uh, reasons I, I raised this question right at the uh, sorry raised this question uh, right at the beginning. Um, of our discussion is is that uh, scholars of religious studies have to um, uh, indicate why they find this material important um, if they're not operating within a theological paradigm that that already determines that importance. And I never sort of answered that the question implicitly raised by that, which is why do I find these uh, documents important, interesting, and worthy of study. Uh, and and for me, what what really stands out about these things is is that they are precious survivals of sub elite cultural discourses mm-hmm. from Roman antiquity. We have so much data uh, uh, from the Roman imperial period, um, uh, so and a wealth of literary data, but. To a remarkable degree, that literary data is the product of elites, and typically the elites of the elites. Uh, that is, that is um, it represents the viewpoints not of the people that you would bump into in the marketplace in Corinth or Athens, um, mm-hmm. but the kind of people who were who were senators or friends of senators. Uh, what sets the New Testament writings apart, what makes them, to me, endlessly fascinating, is that they represent um, a, a tiny fragment of the voice of some of the people that you might run into in the marketplace in Corinth. That makes absolutely perfect sense, and I think it's a great way for wrapping up this podcast. We have, have the pleasure to have you here, Professor Arnold, and we hope to have you again soon. Thank you very much. Well, That was a bit of a long one for the Religious Studies Project, but I hope you're still with us because there was so much to unpack in that episode from the historical Jesus to Q to the Gospel of Thomas, and I really loved the sort of very Project RS way that we also wove in Bruce Lincoln and Jay-Z Smith there. Now, of course, many of you will know that this is an episode that we haven't really covered before, this sort of topic. So we'd love to hear from you on our socials, on Facebook at the Religious Studies Project, and on Twitter at Project RS, with what you thought about this episode and what you would like us to cover in the future if you think there's anything that we haven't discussed in an episode that you would like to hear about. Now, next week, We don't really know what's happening because it's our current affairs discourse episode, so it will be a surprise for us all when that episode comes in. I'm sure it will be fabulous. I love that we are trying to stay up to date in those discourse episodes. And of course, considering the time of year, it might be something a little bit political. We'll just have to see. Until then, all that's left to say is thanks Thanks for listening. listening. 
The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SC04750. Brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson and managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Marek Sullivan and Rebecca Barrett-Fox and our opportunities digest by Ella Bock. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock with audio editing by Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford, sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop and video editing by Jonathan Tuckett. Don't forget you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs and you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes and other portals. <laughs>